Welcome to Meadowbrook Church, loving Jesus by loving people. For more information about who we are, find us online at www.meadowbrook.ca. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 20. If you need a Bible, there's a Bible on the pew in front of you. It's page 987 in that Bible. My heart feels full today. I've just enjoyed worshiping with you guys this morning. Meadowbrook, I love you so much. I just, I really love you a lot. And I'm just so grateful for you for many, many reasons. But yeah, my heart just feels full worshiping with you this morning. And uh, I'm excited to dig into the word with you now. Uh, so we are, this week we're about halfway through our series that we've called The Upside Down Kingdom. And uh, four more weeks after this, and just wanting to take some time to dig into the nature of the kingdom of God. And as we've been talking about, the kingdom of heaven is not just something we will experience one day down the road. Uh, it's not just something that we engage with when we leave this earth. It is something that when Jesus came, he said, I'm building my kingdom right now. I am starting to establish the kingdom of heaven here on earth. When Jesus was born, the rightful king has landed on earth in physical form. And he says, I'm setting up my kingdom now. And for everyone who follows Jesus, you are a citizen of that kingdom. And like all kingdoms, the kingdom of heaven has laws and commandments. It has a culture. It has values. And so we want to take some time to look at how should we be living then as citizens of this kingdom? What does it mean for us to live out the commandments and the laws and the culture and the values of the kingdom of heaven? And the emphasis of the series has been not just the kingdom of heaven, but how what the kingdom of heaven calls us to is is often very, very different than what I might want in my sinful, fleshy self, than what the world maybe is telling us how to live or, how, or what the enemy might be whispering in our ear, that the kingdom of heaven's values and culture and commandments are often very backwards. They are often upside down to the way I would naturally maybe like to live or the way the world is telling me how to live or the way the devil would want me to live. And so it is worth digging into that and saying, okay, so how are we going to live in a way that we are truly holy people? We are truly separate people. We are truly different people from the world around us, where we can live out the way Jesus calls us to live in this upside down way. The tagline has been to learn the ways of the kingdom is to find the will of the king. That if we really want to live a life that is pleasing to God, we have to live out the ways of this upside down kingdom. And so we've been looking at the teachings primarily in the New Testament, uh, as that's where Jesus came and taught us about the ways of the kingdom hands on. And so we have covered a bunch of different topics. And, uh, and as we continue through today, uh, we're going to flip around and, and see another thing that's kind of switched from the way our flesh might want to live. And so we will continue through that this morning. As we do, uh, I want to show you a clip. It's from the TV show The Office, which for my money is the best sitcom of all time. And I will defend that till the day I die. Uh, I guess a better one might come one day, but I read something and I don't know if it's true, but it looked true and it was on the internet, so it's probably true. <laughs> But it said almost 10% of all Netflix usage worldwide is just The Office. It is just the American version of The Office. So if you like the show, you're in good company. If you don't like it, you're probably wrong because a lot of people in the world obviously really like it. And so I want to show you a clip here. Most of you have probably seen the show. If not, it's on Netflix. You can catch up. Uh, but in this scene, in this episode, Michael Scott is the boss, Steve Carell plays him, and he's not a good boss, he's, he's selfish and self-centered, and he's not very good at his job. Uh, and in this scene, one of his employees has been rude to him publicly, 
and the company has demanded that Michael deal with it, but he's not a great leader, and so he doesn't really know how to deal with it. He's not dealing with it very well. And then Michael's right hand, Dwight, who is always looking for more power and more authority, uh, gets involved in how do we solve this problem. So please take a look. Go ahead, Nikki. So who's in control? Who has the power? Who's at the top? Who is the leader? Wars have been fought over trying to answer that question. Marriages have fallen apart. Companies have split apart. Uh, it is a, an important question, and the Bible actually deals with it a fair bit, and talking about authority and leadership and structure and all those kinds of things. But the ways of this upside-down kingdom uh, are often very different, as we've been saying this whole way along, very different from the ways of the world and the ways of the flesh and the ways of the enemy. So let's take a look at our text today. We're in Matthew chapter 20. Let's hear what Jesus has to say about the issue as we look at Matthew 20, starting in verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So one of the things that makes Jesus great and there's lots, we sing about them all the time, but one of the things that really sets Jesus apart from virtually every other religious leader or religious figure out there is that Jesus teaches us something, but then Jesus lives it out as well. He teaches it and he models it at great cost to himself. And not a lot of other religious leaders can we say that about. Muhammad taught about peace, but he was a very violent man and he lived a life of conquest and constant warfare. Buddha talked often about self-denial and self-control, but you've seen the statues, he was a big guy. And yet when Jesus teaches, he doesn't just teach and then just leave us to figure it out on our own. He teaches us and then he shows us, he models it for us. And as he's teaching about uh, taking the lead in this, as he's teaching, teaching about powers, he's teaching about authority, he is teaching a very different way than the world would teach us. A very different way, maybe even that would make sense to us, but then he lives that out. At the same time, he shows us what that looks like. And this whole story starts with a mom. Uh, the heading in my Bible says, a mother's request. Yours probably says something similar in verse 20. The mother of Zebedee's sons come to Jesus. This is the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee. And they were part of Jesus' inner circle. The disciples were his inner circle. But then Peter, John, and James were kind of his inner, inner circle. They got to experience some things that the other apostles didn't experience. Jesus brought them to the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus brought them uh, into the Garden of Gethsemane. So the, those three men, Peter, John, and James, uh, were, were a bit closer to Jesus even than the 12 were. And so this is the mother of John and James, the mother of the sons of Zebedee. She comes and asks a favor of him. What is it that you want? Jesus asks. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. And she's just really being a good mom in this moment. She's being a really good mom. 
And she is understanding that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the source of all blessing. And if I want blessing for my kids, I'm going to go to the source of all blessing. I'm going to present my kids before the Lord. I'm going to ask for his blessing upon my children. That's a great mom. She is doing really what any of us do when we pray for our kids, where we understand that the Lord is the Lord, and we are going to bring our kids before the Lord and seek his blessing. She is interceding for them. She is seeking the blessing of God upon them. And, and it is, a, in her mind, a somewhat simple request that the scripture talks about in heaven, there is some level of hierarchy. Uh, now, God is God, and that's the only thing ultimately that counts, that, that Jesus is Lord. But Jesus would teach on this that, you know, there's, there's places in heaven and your salvation isn't dependent on anything that you can do. Your salvation comes through grace. It comes through uh, his grace that is extended to you that you grab onto by faith. But your reward in heaven is dependent on you. Your reward in heaven has to do with how you live your life and how you conduct yourself. And Jesus encourages us to live our lives with that mindset, with that eternal mindset that you can have your reward here on earth or you can have your reward in heaven. But to live with this idea that, uh, that there is a better, much longer future for us than what this temporary earthly world can offer. And Revelation talks about that there are seats in heaven, there are seats that are closer to the throne, and that seems to be what she's tapping into. And so we know from scripture that when Jesus rose from the dead and returned to heaven, he was seated at the right hand of God. And this is a seat of honor. This is a seat that come, the picture comes from the world at the time where the king would rule from his throne and his eldest son would usually sit at his right hand. And as, as the one sitting there at his right hand, he is watching his father rule and he is learning how to be king and one day dad's gonna die and then the son will move into that seat. But it is the highest you can go in, in the kingdom of the time is to sit at the right hand of the king. And so as Jesus ascends, it's a little different than the earthly model because Jesus is one with the father, but he is seated at the right hand of God. That is the seat of honor. That's the highest that a human can go. Jesus in his human is seated at the right hand of God in his resurrected glory, and he is ruling with God. And so as Jesus is there, uh, sitting in the seat of highest honor in all of heaven, Mrs. Zebedee comes along and says, I want my sons right there with you, Jesus. I want them at your right hand and left hand. I want them at your seats of honor. So if Jesus is sitting in the highest possible place that we can attain to, she wants her sons at the next highest place. She wants them right there. She wants them to have the highest seats of honor as they, as they enter eternity and as they spend eternity with the Lord. So she is asking for a very um, big deal, right? Of all the people and all the earth and all the, the different people who could possibly sit there, I want my sons right there with you, Lord. I want them as high as they can possibly be in heaven. And so as this happens, Jesus has a little bit of pushback on that. Verse 22, he says, you don't actually know what you're asking. And then he asks a very difficult question. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? And he's talking about the cup of suffering. He is essentially saying, for me to sit in the highest seat, I'm going to have to go through the cross. That's what it's going to cost me to be resurrected and, and lifted to the highest place and get the name that is above every name, every name. There is a price that I am going to pay. And so are you able to drink that same cup? If you want that high seat, if you want to be able to be seated there, are you willing to suffer like I am going to suffer? When the apostle Paul comes to Jesus, when he gets saved in the book of Acts, the Lord says to him, you are going to suffer a lot for the sake of the gospel. You're going to suffer a lot for the sake of the kingdom. Sometimes the only way to growth and greatness is through our suffering. 
And so Jesus says to them, you don't really know what you're asking. It's not just about sitting in these seats. If you want that, you're going to have to suffer as I suffered. Will you drink that cup? Will you pay that price? Yes, we can, they answer. Yes, we can. We are willing. And they would. James would be the first one to be martyred of the apostles. John would be persecuted and tortured horribly for the sake of Christ. They would suffer terribly. So Jesus said to them, verse 23, you will indeed drink from my cup. You will indeed suffer as I do. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. And those, I mean, those poor two guys for a second there, right? It's like, okay, you want to sit in those seats? It's really going to cost you more than you can imagine. Can you pay that price? And they say, yes, that's the way to get there. Yes, of course we can. And Jesus says, yes, you will. But I can't promise you those seats. Sorry. Those seats aren't mine to give. The Father has determined that. Jesus, in his humanness in this moment, is not in the authority place to say, yes, I can give you those seats. Maybe they are there. Maybe they aren't. But Jesus says, that's not my call right now. I can't say yes or no. But good news, you're going to suffer still. You're going to drink from that cup. You will. And they did. It must have just been a kick in the butt. It's just like, oh, you thought you were answering right. You were answering sincerely. You were answering enthusiastically. And yet you get the, the worst possible answer, really, which is, yeah, you're going to do all the suffering, but you might not get those seats that you're hankering for. And as they digest that, as they are thinking through that, the other apostles get mad. Verse 24, when the 10, the other 10 apostles heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. They, they don't appreciate what's happening because what the brothers and the mom really were saying, uh, I mean, you could spin it as, we just want to sit really close to you for all of eternity. But what it was really about was, we want to be the greatest. We want to be the greatest. And if Jesus is going to sit at the right hand of God, we, we want to be right there. And if Jesus is the greatest one who earned that spot, we want to be the ones to sit there. We want to be the highest. We want the greatest reward. And ultimately what it's really about is we want to be above all the others, right? We want to be above the other 10. We want to, we want to be higher than them. We want to be elevated over them. And then you see, okay, so it's not so much just about, hey, we want to have a really good seat for all eternity where we get to be close to the Lord. Uh, they're really wanting to elevate themselves. They are really wanting to say, we want to be the greatest. We want to be over even our, our brother apostles here. We want to be greater than everybody else. It comes down to power. It comes down to authority. And the apostles would fight about this from time to time. The apostles bickered a lot, and that makes me feel better when Christians bicker a lot. Uh, it's been going on since the very beginning. But the thing the apostles typically fought about was, who's going to be the greatest? Who's going to be the greatest apostle? Who's going to be the leader, right? Who's, when Jesus leaves, who's the natural next leader? Who's going to walk into that role? Jesus would shut down that talk every single time. There was a show in the 80s called Who's the Boss? Who remembers this show? The 80s had a bunch of really bad sitcoms with really bad hair. And... They really liked kind of weird, zany premises. Like, that was the big deal. Like, there was like a, whoa, what a crazy twist in all of these things. And so it doesn't sound that big a deal. But in the 80s, the twist of Who's the Boss is that there's Tony Maselli in the middle. Tony Danza, remember him? Hey, oh, oh, hey, that guy. He was kind of like a guy guy. He was a jock. He played baseball and everything. And then he found himself as a single dad, uh, needed a job, and so took a job as a housekeeper and as a nanny. Now, in the 80s, that was... Shocking. A man housekeeper? What? So crazy. 
And then Angela, the blonde, she was the one who hired Tony. She was this high-powered executive type. She was also a single parent. And so she hires Tony to look after the house and help look after the kids. And uh, I guess in the 80s, that was hilarious, apparently. Like a female leader? What? A male housekeeper? They just thought it was the funniest thing. And the premise of who's the boss? Because he's the man, so he should be the boss. But he's the housekeeper, and she's the lady, so she should probably be at home. But she's working and all of these things. And it wasn't really that hard because Angela pays the salary. She's obviously the boss. There's no real question about that. But it was all zany gender role confusion and who should be doing what and what's a man's role and what's a woman's role. And it wasn't overly funny. It didn't last very long. But the premise was this whole idea we're talking about today of who is at the top. Who is really in charge? What should that look like? And it is the way the world works. It's always about who's at the top, who's in charge. The stereotype of bad 50s science fiction is the aliens show up, and what's the first question they ask? Take me to your leader. Where's your leader? Right? Take me to the one at the top. So it's all about who's at the top. When companies do well, it's all about who's that amazing leader who's making it do well. When companies do bad, it's we got to fire that horrible leader who's at the top who's making it go badly. It's all about who's at the top. It's all about the structure. And, and of course, our, our marriages can struggle with that. Churches can struggle with that. Who's in charge? Who's at the top? Who is the leader? And when you think about sort of how we've been structuring this series is that there's the kingdom of heaven on one side, and then there's the world and the flesh and the devil on the other side. When the devil rebelled, it was all about power. Right? He didn't want to bow the knee to the Lord. Scripture says he wanted to ascend higher than the throne of the Most High. And so he's all about the power. When you think about our flesh, as we've been talking about through this series, our flesh naturally doesn't love listening to other people, doesn't want to submit to God, doesn't want to submit to other people in our lives. Our flesh wants to be independent and do its own thing. The world certainly structures itself very much around this sort of pyramid of who is great, who's at the top. And it's so different than what Jesus is talking about in this passage. It's so different. It's interesting in the Old Testament, as you read through the stories in Samuel and in Chronicles, that as Jesus, or not Jesus at that point, as Samuel is trying to lead the people of God, and as the priests and the prophets are trying to lead the people of God, uh, Israel starts saying, we want a king like all the other nations have. Right? We want one figure that we can be proud of. We want one person that we can rally behind. We want one person who can lead us to war and lead us to glory. We want one person. And God says, you really, really, really don't want a king. And Israel says, we do. We need that unifying figure. The Lord's saying, you have me. I'm the unifying figure. They said, no, we want someone who can lead us into glory. The Lord's saying, I am your glory, Israel. But Israel keeps at it. We want a king like all the other nations have. We want that one person with all that power. And then finally, God gives in. And I don't know why he did, but finally God says, okay, maybe just like my kids, they just wore him down. I don't know. But God says, okay, but here's what's going to happen. You're going to have a king, and you're going to lose control over your own lives because he's going to have all the power. And he's going to lead you into war. And even if you don't want to go, your sons are going to have to go and die in his war. And your daughters are going to have to go and serve uh, all of his, his appetites. And you're going to pay taxes like crazy because you're going to have to, to sow into his whims and his desires. Like there's going to be a price that you pay for putting that much power and authority in one person. God really didn't want them to do that. And then in his grace and his mercy allowed them to do it. But what God warned them about was what happened. There were not very many 
good and godly kings over Israel and Judah. They were almost all terrible. And God, in that whole discourse, says it's just, it is not good to put that much in the top, to put that much in one person. Up until that point, there had been judges and prophets, and they, they, there might have been a chief one, say, like Samuel, who took the lead, but there was more than one, and they did it as teams, and, and there were different people who led. There were still leaders, but God said, you really don't want to build that pyramid, right? Because God would say, I'm the top of that pyramid. Trust me. And trust the will that I can reveal through the prophets and, and through the judges. Uh, Israel didn't want to go that way. And it did not go well for Israel when they followed the way of the world. And that was exactly their cry. We want to be like the world. And anytime we're talking that way, we should be nervous. Right? We're of a different kingdom. They said, we want to be like the nations. And God said, you're my nation. You really don't need to do that. Uh, they went down the wrong path, and they paid the price for it. God used it still and, and showed himself through it, but it wasn't what he intended for them. And so the disciples are now fighting because it's about who's in charge, who's at the top, who's going to be the greatest. Jesus steps in, verse 25 and 26. He stops the fight. He calls them together. He says, you know the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. And so the word Gentile just means anyone who's not Jewish. But in the context here, he's not making a, an ethnic or a racial argument. What he's really saying is the Gentiles, the pagans, the people who don't know the Lord. What he's really saying is the world, right? Not the people of God. So the way the world runs is, yeah, it's all about who's at the top. It's all about who cracks the whip. It's all about who is just over everybody. And, and that is the constant thing that is shoved in your face in the world. It's all about that. That is the way the world runs. And so when we talk about, uh, you know, climbing the ladder, right? That's a common expression in our culture that we're climbing the corporate ladder or we're, we're trying to climb for position or, or whatever that looks like. Uh, that's the way the world works. And so the people of this world jockey for position and authority and title and status and all of those things. The citizens of the kingdom are to live very differently than that. That we're not to exalt ourselves. We're not to, to focus on that. We're not to, to worry about where we're at in all of this stuff. Jesus couldn't have been clearer. The world works that way. Not so with you, people of God. Not so with you. It is to be different with you. Leadership in the kingdom still exists, but it is to look differently than that. Jesus would have a, a back and forth with the Pharisees often as, he, as we go through the Gospels with him. Uh, Pharisees were always challenging them. He was always challenging them. And as he's talking about uh, the Pharisees in Matthew 23, he's talking about this issue of power and authority and leadership in the kingdom. And in Matthew 23, starting in verse 5, He's talking about the Pharisees. He says, everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father and he is in heaven. 
nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So the Pharisees were really bad at elevating themselves, right? Like they, they wore special clothes, the phylacteries. They would take scriptures, and they would write them down, and they would bind them around their arms and bind them around their heads, and they wore their tassels. The law said your clothing had to have tassels. They make their tassels extra long, so everyone knows they're a Pharisee. Everyone knows that they are a leader, and they love the special seats, and they love the titles that come with it. They love being up here, and everyone else is down here. They love that. And then Jesus just undoes all of that. And he says exactly the opposite, actually. No, no special titles, no special seats, no special clothes. That's not what you do, right? Because God is the leader, and you are all brothers. You are all equals. And although there are leaders in church, and there are leaders in our lives, that it's not to be leaders who exalt themselves up here. Jesus would say the opposite. And so, again, Jesus would seem to say really clear, no special clothes, no special seats, no special titles. And then you look at the church, and for almost all of its history, we've done the exact opposite of that. Leaders have special clothes, and they sit in special seats, and we give them special titles. And the Anabaptist, of which we are a part, that is our stream of the church, always pushed against that and said, why would we do things that Jesus specifically told us not to do? Like, why would we elevate leaders in such a way, in such a way that, uh, that is just so different? I have a friend who's an Anglican priest, and we're in school together, and she really struggles with this stuff, and we've talked about this stuff a lot, but she does wear special clothes as a priest, uh, and she is, her title is Reverend, and so everyone calls her Reverend Pilar. And now she works for the diocese, and so she has a different role. And so now she's the most venerable Reverend Pilar. When she graduates school, she'll, she will be the most venerable Reverend Dr. Pilar. And she insists, like, just call me Pilar. I don't need any of that stuff. But there's these titles that go with it. And we get asked this sometimes, listen, please call me Chris. I don't need to be Pastor Chris. I'm trying to live out what Jesus just said in Matthew 23. We don't need special titles here. It's a job description. That's great. I am fine to be called Chris. If you want your kids to call Sarah Pastor Sarah as a sign of respect for an adult, that's okay. But we, we really don't want titles to be important to us because Jesus said they shouldn't be. Even in a church, Jesus is the head, right? Jesus is the shepherd. Jesus is the pastor. And so as Jesus sets up his kingdom and teaches us the ways of the kingdom, that there is just such a different way than what we have always done. But Jesus makes sure in that passage in Matthew we just read that we make clear that leadership in the church is Jesus is the head of the church. And then there are a few people who are definitely not Jesus, who are broken, sinful people who help out on the practical level but no one is to be elevated in that way. Jesus is the only one to be elevated because Jesus is the only one who is perfect. Jesus would go on in verse 26 of our passage to say, yeah, you don't elevate yourself. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. And so, so different than what the flesh would naturally do, so different than what the world is telling us, so different than the way the devil conducts himself, is that to be great in God's eyes is to make yourself lower, not higher. Not to promote yourself, not to elevate yourself. 
To serve him well is to be a servant to others and not say like the pagans, well, I'm up here and you're down here, so you do what I say, but to take on the posture of a servant. And, uh, and we often teach on this passage in light of church leadership, and of course it applies there, but lots of us are leaders in different ways, right? Men, we are leaders in our household. The principle still applies. We can be leaders in our workplace. We can be leaders in our ministry. We, we often lead uh, as parents or whatever. We lead in different ways. But Jesus is setting this up to say, yes, we need to have human leaders, but the human leaders who are there are going to be living like Jesus as servants to the people that they lead. Not lifting themselves up, not saying my way is the right way and yours is the wrong way. There's a passage in Ephesians, Ephesians 5 uh, that we often quote, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, you know Ephesians 5 more famously a few verses later, which is wives submit to your husbands, right? Wives submit to your husbands. And there's a lot of men who have used that to say, woman, know your place and do what you're told, right? Do what you're told, because I'm the man, I'm in charge, and my will is what's going to be done. And the men who like to quote that in that way leave out this one, which comes a couple verses earlier, which is, you know what? Everyone is called to a life of submission to one another. And they also typically leave out that after it says, wives, submit to your husbands, it says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, laying down his life for her, giving himself up for her. And so submit to your husbands cannot mean do what you're told because I'm in charge. That is completely counter to everything that we're looking at in our passage today. Jesus puts leaders in place in a household, in a church, in a workplace, in a ministry, absolutely. But he wants to make sure that the leaders that he is putting in place are servant-hearted, other-centered leaders who are not saying my way is right, but who are saying how can I serve you and be your slave today? And I have noticed that when a man will do that for his wife, when he will truly lead in a way that puts her first and puts the kids first, not giving them everything they want, but puts their consideration first and not leading selfishly that my way is the right way, but how can I serve you? How can I lay down my life for you? How can I be a slave to you? That when a man can do that, a woman has no problem submitting to a man who leads in that way. Jesus knows we need leaders. We need them. We're, we're like sheep, and we need people who can look after us in lots of different areas of life. But as we do that, he wants to make sure it's the right kind of leaders there. There's a fascinating story in Acts chapter 15, which is the Council of Jerusalem. One of the things that happens in the book of Acts is that people start coming to Jesus like crazy in Jerusalem and then in different areas of Israel. And it's Jewish people. And that made sense to them at the time because God is the God of Israel. He has revealed himself to the Jewish people. But then non-Jewish people, Gentiles, start getting saved. And they didn't have a paradigm for that. It was a, a crazy brand new idea. Gentiles are getting saved. Well, what do we do with all these Gentiles? Do they need to be circumcised? Do they need to become Jewish? They probably need to become Jewish, right? Because God has revealed himself to Israel. And so they are wrestling with this in the early church. It was just brand new. It had never happened before. So in Acts chapter 15, a council is called. It's the first council of the new church. And the apostles come together uh, in Jerusalem with the elders of the Jerusalem church, and they come to wrestle through the matter. And one of the reasons I love this story is because the apostle Peter gets up right? The spokesperson of the early church, the one who stood up at the day of Pentecost, the one who had, had walked with Jesus through everything and, and seen him resurrected. Peter stands up and says, here's my experience with the Gentiles. I, I was just preaching the gospel to some of them, and the Holy Spirit fell upon them, and they started speaking in tongues, and they were giving glory to Jesus. So I can't explain it, but God obviously wants them saved. And everyone's amazed by that. 
Then the Apostle Paul gets up, the great theologian of the church. He wrote much of the New Testament. And then the great, just real teacher, scripture, digging into the text and, and unpacking it for us. Paul gets up with Barnabas. And they say, here's our experience with the Gentiles. Uh, we have been sharing, and they have been getting saved, and, and the Holy Spirit is moving among them. Uh, and it's beautiful to see, and everyone's excited about this. And then James gets up, who is the brother of the Lord. James is an elder. He is one of the elders of the Jerusalem church. And in terms of church structure, apostles are up here. Elders are underneath them, technically. The apostles are the overall leaders of the church. The elders are underneath them. And James stands up and he says, we've heard from the apostles, we've heard the testimonies. You know what, I've been going through the scripture and I actually hear our verses in the Old Testament that say that God wants the Gentiles to be saved. It was always part of his plan for the Gentiles to be saved. God wants to be God of the whole world, not just Israel. So let's welcome in the Gentiles. Let's not circumcise them. Let's not make it hard for them. Let's welcome them in to the family of God. And scripture says everybody listened to James and what he, what, what he was saying sounded right to them. It sat right with them. They said, that is the word of the Lord. That is the will of God for us. And they endorsed his idea. And the reason I bring that up in the context of what we're talking about today is that no one there of the apostles' rank said, well, James, you know what? The apostles are going to make that decision. That's, that's our job. No one said, James, you know, we're, we're the ones who he appointed to do that, and so we are, we're the leaders, and so we're going to figure that out. No, when James gets up and speaks, they say, wow, that's the wisdom of God right there. Because when the Holy Spirit was poured out on all flesh, there is this understanding that anybody can hear from God. Anybody can have a word from God. Anybody can have the wisdom of God. That's not something that's just concentrated to a few. And what we see in the New Testament are these teams, teams, teams of people, teams of apostles, teams of elders, teams of people discerning together and wrestling together and working things out together. And I say, like, I, I have been a lead pastor in a, another stream of the church that really elevates the lead pastor. I was never comfortable with it. Uh, they really elevate the lead quite high. And when I would say to my board, help me discern this, they would say, we trust you. You're the lead. We'll follow you. And I would say, I love the trust, that's awesome, but we shouldn't be doing this on our own. And I say that because I know how wrong I can get it. I know how sinful I am. I know the mistakes that I make. And so God, as he's setting up the New Testament church, puts these teams in place where it says, I'm not going to put it on any one person. Like, there is no chief apostle. There is no chief elder. There is a group of apostles. There's a group of elders. They wrestle through things together. And they're not elevating Paul way up here or Peter way up here. You know, Paul corrects Peter later in the New Testament. He says, Peter was out of line. Like there's, there's a, a brotherhood. There's a, a, even amongst leaders, there is this understanding that we are all committed to one another. We're not elevating some above the other. It's servant leadership. And it's the servant leadership we're called to in church. It's the servant leadership we're called to in our households. It's servant leadership we're called to at the workplace where we are not lording it over others, whatever authority we have, whether it's a husband's authority or a parent's authority or whatever, but we are sincerely doing what is best for the people we are leading, doing what is best for our families. Uh, and I don't mean we, again, we just cave and give them what they want. We make hard choices as leaders, as parents, as husbands, absolutely. But it's not about what's best for me is the point. It's not about my way is definitely right because I've been put in this position. It's just not true. It's just not possible. 
So Jesus says, if you want to be great in God's eyes, then you don't elevate yourself. You don't worry about climbing the ladder. You make yourself a servant. You make yourself a slave. And then he wraps up saying, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says, even I didn't come to lord it over you, and I'm the Lord. Even I didn't come to elevate myself. I've come to serve the Father, and I've come to serve you. I've come to obey the will of God and live it out, and I've come to serve you. I am putting you ahead of me. I'm putting your needs above my own. And that is not going to be anywhere better pictured, of course, than at the cross, where Jesus said, this is about you. This is about saving you. This is about showing my great love for you. This is about undoing what you yourself did, but I'm going to fix for you. And rather than Jesus saying, rightfully so, you know what? I don't need to do that. I didn't do anything wrong. I don't need to go to a cross. He said, no, I will serve my people. I will go to the cross. I will do it to obey the Father. I will do it to bring them back to me. And that as Jesus lays down his life, he deals with our sin and our separation from God. As Jesus rises from the dead, he deals with our death and he brings us back to life in eternity with him. And then Jesus says, come follow me. Trust me. Put your hope in me. Come after me. Jesus shows us what this kind of leadership looks like. Even separate from the cross, his whole life was about blessing and serving other people. That's what he gave. He didn't use his godness, as we looked in week one, to elevate himself, to make himself comfortable. He chose a life of poverty. He chose a life of sorrows, a life of suffering. He chose a life of giving it all up for other people. Ultimately, at the cross, the king of glory took the path of a servant even though he was the king. And followers of that king also need to take the path of a servant. If he was willing to do that, then we need to be willing to as well. And no matter what my flesh says about what I deserve or what I think I'm entitled to, no matter what the world says about how things should be, no matter what the enemy might be whispering in our ears, we follow the way of the upside-down kingdom. Where the kingdom of this world says, raise yourself. The upside-down kingdom says, no, you lower yourself. If God wants to raise you up higher, he can raise you up higher. If God wants you to have a promotion, you'll have a promotion. Our job is to be faithful to what Jesus told us to do. And what he told us to do was to take the path of a servant and a slave. Lower is higher in the upside-down kingdom. Come on up, worship team. We have an email address, questions at meadowbrook.ca. And if you have any questions about the message, about the series so far, I'd be very happy to answer. You can shoot us a text or an email and be happy to keep that conversation going. Mark 9, 35 says that Jesus sits down with his disciples. He says, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. It's so different. It's so different than what we are told, than what we are taught, than what even our instincts must say. If you want to be first, pick the last place. If you want to be great, choose the lowest place. If you want God to say, well done, good and faithful servant, there's a different way we have to live than the way maybe we naturally want to live. But that is the way of the upside-down kingdom. Our natural tendencies are always challenged by the person and the teaching and the example and the character of Jesus Christ. He challenges us to be different than we are. And as we embrace his ways, as we follow after his ways, then we will hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant, when we're living like he did, when we're living how he showed us to live. So we choose last place, we choose the quiet place, we can choose the background place, we can choose the lowest place, we can wash the feet, we can scrub the floor, we can do whatever. 
and just trust that as we serve in that way, if Jesus has more for us, he'll give us more. And, and we are content with that. Just to trust that I don't need to elevate myself. He can do it. That I don't need to, to move forward in this way. He can do that. If he wants to do that, our job is to be faithful and to submit and walk with him. Would you stand with me, please? Part of lowering ourselves is worship, where we exalt him and not ourselves. So we want to close with some worship today.